morning. Great to see all of you. I'm excited for this week um, because we're having the Leadership Summit on Thursday and Friday. And uh, what makes this year especially eventful, I guess, is we have the largest number of people that have uh, ever attended this event for us as a church in the 14 years that we've hosted it. Uh, we're going to probably break the 700 mark this year. And I, I just want to ask you, if, um, if you would just remember, if you'd remember to pray for uh, not only our site, but all over our country and really all over the world, uh, because there's just literally uh, thousands of people that are going to be sharing in this event. And we've got many people coming from different churches, different ministries in our city, different, different occupations, businesses, uh, education. And uh, so this place is going to be filled Sunday, I mean, uh, on Thursday and Friday with, um, with a lot of people uh, that li her, their lives are going to be impacted uh, by these two days. So please, uh, please do pray. Well, as Melissa said, it's, uh, it's my privilege uh, today to be able to preach the second of two sermons from uh, the Old Testament book of Job. And Tim and I are answering two questions, the why question and the how question. And Tim focused on the first question last Sunday, why God allows suffering to take place. Tim did a great job. In fact, um, I, I wouldn't even have had to uh, hear it myself because I heard it from a bunch of people. Beck and I were at Village Point Sunday afternoon walking down the sidewalk and a car pulled up alongside us and somebody shouted, hey Steve, Tim did an incredible job preaching. You better really bring it on next Sunday, you know. And, and I suddenly felt all this pressure, you know. Uh, uh, yeah. So, but you know, I, I, it, it, it blesses me. I mean, it just gives me so much joy every time I hear that about one of our staff members. And for me right now, that, that gives me even more joy to hear, about, hear that about another staff member than to hear the same thing about myself. And so I was really happy for Tim. And also excited about that because it's very important to, to, to have the answer to the why question. Why God allows suffering? Because frankly... It's, it's probably, uh, if not number one, number two, or number three reason for why people have rejected the whole idea of the existence of God, that there's suffering on our earth, or that people struggle with the idea of believing that in the God that we believe in, the God, the God of the Bible. And so it's important for us to be able to answer that question for other people as, as we want to answer it for ourselves so that we can really help them understand, you know, they're really... There, there is a good answer to the, to the why question. And in fact, I would, you might be here today, and you yourself might be going through the hardest time in your life. You're asking that very question, and, and you're struggling with this whole idea of believing in the God of the Bible. And so I would just say, wherever you're at in this whole question, wherever you're at in your spiritual journey, uh, if you were gone last Sunday, you didn't hear Tim, I'd say go online, watch it. It'll, it'll be totally totally worth your time. So today I get to answer the second question, the how question. And it's a question that I'm confident that every one of us have asked at some point in our lives. And the question is this, how, how do I comfort those who are suffering? What do I say, what do I do that will help give them what they need so that in their hard time, in their suffering, they, they're not destroyed by it, but they, they come out of it a better and, and a stronger person, you know, not just simply surviving, but you could say thriving in, as in, the, midst, in the midst of their hard time. 
and I, I got to say, you know, it's impossible to overstate knowing the, the importance of knowing the answer to this question. Because if we get right, if we get this right, then, then we're loving people at a point in their life that really it, where it matters the most. We're showing the love of Christ at, at a point in their life that makes all, their, all the difference in their ability not simply to survive but really to become a stronger and a better person through a time in their life that could do the very opposite, that could destroy them. So, very, very important question. It's also a question for us to answer for ourselves. You might be here right now, you're going through the hardest time in your life that you've ever experienced, and you're wondering, how do I comfort myself? If you and I could have a conversation, you'd say, Steve, how do, how do I get through this? Before even thinking about being able to help anybody else, how am I going to be able to help myself? How do I find the strength that I need for what I'm experiencing right now in my life? And I would just say, if there's any time when self-leadership is critical, it's in the midst of suffering. So that you're dealing with that hard time that you're facing in a way that builds your character and doesn't tear you down. And so, this is a great question for us to look at. The question, how do I comfort those who are suffering? How, how, do, I, how do I comfort others? And how do I comfort myself? What I say this morning might be a bit messy. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak from personal experience. As I looked at this whole subject, I thought, I really believe I need to do this. I'm going to do this because I want you to know that since our son Greg died in 2011 from a heart attack, totally uh, perfectly healthy guy, I got to tell you, it's having people in our lives who comforted us in ways that Becky and I desperately needed comfort that's made all the difference for us to be able to become stronger and better through these last five years. And please know that, and I, yeah, I want everybody, I don't want any misunderstanding this morning. Please know that everything that I'm going to say here in these next few minutes, I've learned more about comforting in the last five years than I did in the first 60 years of my life. And, and now looking back, I wondered how often I missed being the comforter that I could have been uh, for other people. So just, just understand that as I'm talking, I'm listening to myself. Um, I'm, I'm with everybody on this one. And then I would also say that whatever your loss, because we all have we all have different losses in our lives. Whatever hard time that you're going through in your life right now, my hope this morning is that what I'm going to say here in these next few minutes will be helpful for you, helpful for every one of us. So let's begin with self-leadership uh, through suffering. And what, we do, what we discover is that Job got it right and his wife got it wrong. It's always nice, isn't it, when it happens that way, guys? <laughs> right? Your wives get it wrong and you got it right. Doesn't happen enough for me. So last Sunday we saw that Job was the real deal when it came to his relationship with God. So much so that God himself described him as a righteous man, a man of integrity. I can't think of anything better 
to have God say about you. But he was a righteous man who inexplicably and suddenly lost everything. All of his possessions, every one of his children, his own health. And, and, and you know, really what this shows us as we talk this morning is that in some ways, every single one of us can relate to what Job went through. The first and second chapters of Job, and you see that, that apart from his wife, he, he lost everything. And as we saw last Sunday, all of it lost because of Satan's effort to prove that Job's faithfulness to God wasn't based on who, who Job knew God to be, but, but it, was, it was because of God's blessing him with everything that a person could want. Job had it all. And Satan claimed this is why he was the man he was. But Satan's proved wrong. Through all of his suffering, Job remains faithful to God. He, he stays the man that he's always been, a man of integrity. So much so that his wife, who should have been his number one comforter, becomes his first outspoken critic. Angry at God herself, she comes to him in the midst of his suffering, his horrible suffering. Instead of encouraging him to be, remain faithful to God, she criticizes him for hanging on to his integrity. Curse God and die, she said. Done with it. Give it up. Get it over. And it's here we see the first reason Job's able to remain faithful to God. And this you do not want to miss, everybody. It's huge, all right? He understood, Job understood, that he had no right to assume that his own life would be free from trouble. Not any, you know, that, that he shouldn't expect something different from anybody else. Which is why he said it, what he said, why he said what he said in response to his wife, where he said, you're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble. He's saying, he's saying to her, what right do we have to think that our lives, only our lives are going to only be easy and good? Why would we assume that? I've got to tell you, going to any hard time with Job's wife's perspective, and you're headed into a life of misery. Share Job's perspective, and it makes all the difference in your ability to handle hard times. Somebody said to me after first service, Steve, you got to say that more than once. Because so, we just cannot miss it. Go into any hard time with Job's wife's perspective, and I tell you, you're headed into a life of misery, but share Job's perspective, and it makes all the difference in your ability to handle hard times. This is huge. And so this is the way I, I'm going to say it. Live with a realistic expectation of life. I'm so thankful for the privilege God gave to me to see this lived out in my own parents' lives. And some of you know this. And um, so bear with me. You're going to have to hear it again. But I, I need to share it with everybody because so many of you are new here. But I grew up in a, in a home where my mom was about as physically disabled as any person could possibly be. As a young girl, she, uh, uh, rheumatoid arthritis invaded her body. And then she had a period of time of remission. But by the time she was a, a young woman, 
when my dad and mom first got married, it came back with a vengeance. And it began to destroy her body. And so that by, after my mom, after my, I'll fast forward, after my mom died, the doctor that had been a part of her life for many years said he had never seen anybody whose body had been so destroyed by that disease. It literally ate up the bones in her, in her fingers, um, uh, it, it, throughout her body, if it, if it didn't completely destroy a bone, it, it, it cracked bones. It just, it was just, it was, my mother went from somebody who was my height to when she died, she came up to here on, on me. Her, her back was curved and twisted. Uh, when my mom could still walk, uh, the arthritis was so crippling that literally her legs were like this. Um, and it just, every part of her was just all wrong. Um, terrible suffering. Um, terrible suffering. But if my parents were living today and I could have them up here, they'd say that they totally agree with Joe. I never heard them say anything that hinted at God being unfair to them. Not, not once did I see any bitterness toward God or any doubt in God's love and God's goodness to them. And, and, and that's no exaggeration. This is, this is too serious a thing that we're talking about this morning for me to exaggerate. My parents have tough days emotionally. <laughs> Absolutely. Did, did they always handle everything perfectly? No, they didn't. But ask me what's been one of the greatest faith builders in my life. And I'll say it's seen the commitment of my parents to God in the hardest of circumstances. Year after year, I saw this. I saw it with, with every downward turn in my mom's illness. Her, her love and, and my dad's love for God never ended. They kept on trusting God and they kept on living for God. And I'm so grateful for this. And when I became most, most grateful is when our son Greg died unexpectedly five years ago as a young, healthy, 35-year-old man. My parents are part of the reason that I didn't go into anger or bitterness toward God and life. They're, they're part of the reason that I haven't doubted God's love and God's goodness. Have I had down days emotionally? <laughs> better believe it. I still do. I still can be in the midst of a good day and, and something unexpected happens and triggers all the grief in me. I still have days that begin and end with overwhelming sadness inside. And I haven't handled everything perfectly. I can turn on a dime from a good guy into someone who's not a bit of fun to be around. Uh, the, the stress that comes from my grief can ignite, you know, just trigger a whole, a whole lot of nastiness in me. But I can tell you, I'm more thankful today for God's grace in my life. I love my Savior. I've continued to trust him with my life. Everything in me wants to honor him and live for him. And part of the reason I can be that way is because I saw it in my mother and I saw it in my father day after day, year after year. And then there's Job's three friends. <laughs> uh, boy, if there's three people that are 
familiar in scripture, I'd say it's his three friends, you know. What do we say about these guys? Well, they, they did some things that show us how to comfort others, some really good things, and then they did one very foolish thing that led Job to describe them in the 16th chapter as miserable comforters. Not because they were wicked. They were good guys. But they were very foolish when it came to this one thing. They, and, and what they do, and they really do us a favor, they show us one thing that we must never, ever, ever do to someone who's suffering. We're going to see it. But before we do, let's see several things not to miss in what they did right. And, and so again, I'm, I'm going to talk this through from my, my own experience uh, since Greg died, and so it's going to be a bit me messy maybe at points. But everybody, listen again, okay? I'm saying what I, I'm going to say today because I, I want us to excel at this as a church. Because if we do this right, we're loving others when it, when it really matters the most. We're, we're showing the love of Christ at a point in their life when they could be destroyed. And, and if we can help them, we can do this the right way, we're going to help them become better and stronger because of the hard time in their life. And, and we can even do this for ourselves. So Job chapter 2, verse 11. I love these, their names, you know. When, when Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. These guys started do, out doing the right thing. From our own experience, Becky and I would say it's the first important thing to do when anybody's suffering. And very simply, stating very simply, go to the person who's suffering. Go to the person who's suffering. If your relationship, and this is, this is when it's especially important, if your relationship with that person is something that you both value, you, you truly have a friendship that's meant a lot to both of you, do everything within your power to be with that person as quickly as possible. Saturday morning that Greg died, Beck and I experienced this in a wonderful way. Within a half hour from the time we called some of our closest friends, they were at our house. And, and they didn't leave, leave us until they had, they had done everything they could, they could, could do to give us the help that we, we so desperately needed that morning. There, there were decisions that we needed to make, things that needed to be done at home, at church, all of which Becky and I were incapable of doing on our own because our minds were numb with grief. And these dear friends walked through all of this with us, patiently, gently, thoughtfully, wisely. I cannot imagine us making it through that morning without them. In fact, I'll just say this, Jeff Dart uh, was at our house. And Jeff literally, literally walked by my side that morning as I, and I, it's, at times it was like I was just wandering around that house. I, you know, 
My mind was so numb. He just stayed right by me. My brother tells me, this is how numb my mind was. My, one of my brothers tells me that I called him three times that morning to tell him the same thing. Yeah? That's where my mind was. And the thing about this, every one of them dropped whatever they were doing to be with us. And all I can say this morning to you is, if you ever receive a call from a close friend who desperately needs you to be with him or her, or, or the, the Holy Spirit prompts you to go to that person, do what Job's three friends did and what our friends did for us. If it's within your power, drop whatever you're doing to go to them. The second thing Job's friends did right was to weep with Job. And, and so verse 12, we read this. When they saw him from a distance, they, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. That's the right thing to do. When you're in grief, there's so much comfort in the tears of those who love you. And so don't hold back the emotion that you're feeling. And so I'll just say it this way. Weep with the person who's suffering. Weep with the person who's weeping. These guys did it right. I mean, even tearing their robes and, and sprinkling dust on their heads. In the culture of that day, what they were doing showed Job that his suffering impacted them. It, it, it was tearing them apart to see him suffer. And so all I can say to you is let your love show. When you're the one crying, you don't want to cry alone. I'll never forget the day of uh, Greg's funeral service. One of the guys from our church here, a lot of people drove all the way to Minneapolis. And one of the guys came up to me um, and did something I, I didn't expect, but he, it was literally his way of expressing his love and his emotion. He not only hugged me, but he kissed me on the cheek. And I'll just, I'll never forget that. It was just, it was just, it just, the comfort just went deep inside of me. They did a third thing that gives strength to the person who's suffering. They spent time with Job. And so I'll just say it simply. Give time to the person who's suffering. So verse 13, we read this. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. You know, that, that's really no small deal, is it? Have you ever done that for anybody? Seven day, Not only seven days, but seven nights sitting on the ground. Right by Job's side. It's got me thinking about what a person experiences when you're in grief that I don't think I, I, I really don't believe I understood until Greg died. And it's this, time changes for you. Time changes for you. It's hard to put words to this, but it's as if time stops. You're, you're so overwhelmed by grief that it's almost impossible to think about anything else. It's really an, an inexplicable thing that you go through. You, there, there's a short period of time around the funeral of someone you've lost. And, and, and people are there, there with you, grieving with you. And then it's over. And everyone goes back to their own lives, which is, which is normal. You wouldn't expect it any other way. But, but you're still in your grief. Time has stopped for you. 
and you feel more alone than you ever, ever have in your life. I'm sure there's more than a few of you out here who understand this. You, you, you know what it feels like. You've been there. And all I can say is that if there's ever a time you need your close friends to be near you, this is it. Close friends who give you the time you need to deal with the grief that you're feeling. You see, life doesn't go back to normal. It doesn't. It just doesn't. You, and, you, you know, you, you don't really understand this until you've experienced it. And what makes it even harder is when others expect that it will. It was only a year after Greg's death that it came back to me that, that someone had said that Steve needs to get over it. Just needs to get over it. It's one of the most foolish and hurtful things that I think has ever been said in my whole life, honestly. Because hear this, everybody. You never get over it. You learn to live with it. And, and then there's the second half of verse 13. It says that no one said a word to him because they, they saw how great his suffering was. Here's what came to mind for me with this. Weigh your words carefully. Boy, if, you, if you're taking notes this morning, you got to write that one down, okay? Because this is, this is like way up there in importance. And, and what, I, what I'd like to do is just share a few thoughts with you from, from our own experience that I hope will be helpful. Again, it's going to be messy. Isn't it true that one of the things that we all go through when we want to comfort somebody else who's going through a hard time in our life, and the harder the time it is, the more true this is. You're, sometimes you're just at a total loss what to say. Isn't it true that, that you're going to go like, what can I possibly say that's going to help this person, right? You just, just go through that. So here's what Beck and I experienced. It brought huge comfort to us. Okay? There were times when the person wanting to comfort us couldn't bring themselves to say anything. Same as Job. I can, I can remember it. <laughs> you know, that night before Greg's funeral, the visitation, and the day of the funeral itself, there were times when people would come up to us, and they just, they, they were so overwhelmed. They couldn't say anything, just like Job's three friends. But I got to tell you, we understood. We still understand. The expression on their face, the tears in their eyes, the, the, the hug they gave us was all that we needed. All we needed. And so don't ever feel bad if you can't say anything. And, and then there were times when all they could say was how much it broke their hearts to see what we were going through. And that they were praying for us. That's all they could say and again. Say and again that was so immensely comforting for us. And then there were those times when Greg's name was spoken. Someone telling us what Greg meant in their lives. Or someone, you know, someone who knew Greg, knew him as a little boy, and as a young man. You know, and, and, or someone asking us who never knew Greg, 
to tell us about him. It's meant everything to us. Because you never want the person you love to be forgotten. Greg was a lawyer, and he got into property in Minneapolis. And, and so there, he had a business partner. And, and so there were signs all over downtown Minneapolis that had his name on them. And I think I maybe told you once when Greg, the joke is when Greg would go out on a date with a woman, he would sometimes drive up past one of those signs so he could impress her, you know. And, but I never wanted those signs to be taken down. But they were. I wanted to go put them up again. What wasn't comforting? What wasn't comforting was having someone say a sentence or two in what seemed like a half-hearted effort to comfort and then, and then go on and, and on and on and on about what was happening in their own lives. For example, with visitation. Again, this is messy, so don't, don't misunderstand. This is not that Becky and I don't want people to talk about what's you know, we want you to talk about what's happening in your lives, but there's certain times. And this is somebody that grew up with me. I knew her all my life. And she said a couple sentences, you know, feeling sorry, you know, how she felt badly for us. But then she went on to talk about what her own children were accomplishing for the next 10, 15 minutes. I've got to be honest with you, in my humanity, it's like I was asking God, open the floor and swallow this woman. You know, <laughs> get her out of here. You know? <laughs> what also doesn't help is having someone quickly say they understood. Again, quickly say they understood what we were going through because of what they went through. And I just got to tell you, that's, that's not a good thing to say. It's almost never true. And the times when this was the hardest is when there wasn't the slightest similarity. And, and, and the worst one of, of all was having a conversation with someone who said to us, and I mean, I just like, what? Said, I understand what you're going through because our dog died. It's like, what? One of the most frustrating is having someone quote scripture to teach us how to deal with our grief. Don't ever do that. I had a pastor do this to me on a, on a Sunday morning. He was visiting our church, and I felt kind of bad for the guy because I already came to church in a bad mood that Sunday. Because of my grief. And so I wasn't very nice <laughs> in my response to him. Don't ever do that. One more thought connected to Job's friends. Uh, not saying anything for seven days, and I'm going to be very honest here. I'd have to say that one of the most painful things for me these five years since Greg died is the complete silence of those I had hoped would show concern. Nothing for five years. From close friends, from family. 
Again, I'm only speaking from my own experience, and, I, and, I, and honestly, I know that I never really understood this before we lost Greg. I mean, it, it means as much now as it did the first months after Greg died to have someone ask me how I'm doing or how Becky's doing or, or how Nikki's doing. It, 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 still, it still means so much to hear Greg's name being spoken. To still hear what he meant to others. To, to still have someone ask me something about Greg's life. That just hasn't changed. And the thing about this, it could be something as simple as a, a phone call, a, a note, a text, an email, you know, a short conversation. I, I have a pastor friend who sent Becky and me a card nearly every month since Greg died. There's, there's a couple in, in our church who sent us a card Every year, every year we've gotten a card. Again, it means so much to us. And, and again, this is messy. And don't misunderstand me. I, I don't want this to get weird. I don't want everybody to send us a card now, you know. <laughs> don't, don't, don't misunderstand me. I'm not, okay. I'm just saying, I'm just saying this to think about doing it for somebody in the future. Or somebody you know now going through a hard time. I've wondered often how often I missed doing this. What's well, after these seven days of silence that Job finally speaks? And you read the third chapter and, and, you, and, and you see that what he said was filled with despair. He, he wishes he'd never been born. He, he expresses in the strongest emotion possible how terrible life had become for him. And it's in response to this that Eliphaz speaks. It's here that things go south, and he becomes what Job described as a miserable comforter. And unfortunately, he's not alone. Job's other two friends are with him on this. They, they made a trio of miserable comforters. They were their own perfect storm. A storm that they put Job through for 34 chapters. And, and so for the sake of time, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm going to focus only on what Eliphaz said, and I'm going to narrow it down to the most miserable of miserable things that he said to Job, and one that you and I must never, ever do to anybody. So let's look at this, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Temanite replied, if someone ventures a word with you, will you be impatient, Job? Are you going to be impatient with me now, Job? I'm going to say something. He said, but who can keep from speaking? He said, think of how you've instructed many, how you've strengthened feeble hands. Your, your words have supported those who stumbled. You've strengthened faltering knees, Job. You know what I want to say to Job right now? Watch out, Job. You're getting set up. Okay? And he was. As he goes on, he says, but now, now trouble comes to you and you're discouraged. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Should not your piety be your confidence in your blameless ways, your hope? You know, you know what he's saying? Job, if, if you're so righteous, you shouldn't be discouraged. You know what that's like? That's like a knife in, into Job. And then he said this, and this is the worst of the worst. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I've observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God, they perish at the blast of his anger. They are no more. This is as cold and unsympathetic as it gets. 
He's saying to Job, Job, you're, you're getting what you deserve. So stop complaining, Job. Examine your life. Figure out what you're doing wrong. Make it right. And Job, everything's going to be fine again. I'd say that everything that Eliphaz did right up to that point, he wiped out with this one statement. Job needed comfort and he got a lecture. Got a lecture. And what makes it even worse is that Eliphaz was 100% wrong. Job's suffering had nothing to do with anything that Job did wrong. In fact, the very opposite. It had everything to do with all the things that Job did right. Here's the problem, everybody. What Eliphaz said to Job is still being said to people today. You're sick. Something tragic is happening in your life. If you're not, even if you're not prospering financially, you'll be told by some people it's because you sinned or, or you have a lack of faith. My parents went through this. It's as hard as it is to imagine. They even had family members tell them this. And as hard as it is to believe, there, there are people today who are, who are still saying this kind of thing to people who are suffering. I mean, turn your television on to some of the Christian programming and give a one-day watching, and I'll, I'll, bet, I'll bet you anything you, you hear that more than once. I am so thankful to God that in these last five years, nobody, nobody has ever said anything like that to Becky and me. So grateful. Now, here's the deal. Each one of the things that Job's friends did right for him and the one thing that they did so badly also have everything to do with how we lead ourselves through hard times and suffering. You see, we need to ask. You need to ask for the help that you need. You need to allow others to see your tears and to weep with you. You need to give yourself the time that you need to grieve. And you need to weigh your words carefully. And by that, what I mean is be careful what you say to yourself about yourself. So dangerous. Because when you're in the midst of a hard time, what, whatever it might be, it is so easy to get down on yourself. And one of the things that I've realized is, is how important it is to have friends in your life, you know, your closest friends who you can trust, who... You, you, you really, you should just ask them, help me with this one. Help me when I get off base and what I say. Just two weeks ago, I was with two very, very close friends. And I was doing that kind of a thing. I was saying things about myself that made no sense. And, and, and one of them just, you know, just said to me what I needed to hear. Steve, you can't do that. Can't do that. Now, I want to I just add one more here this morning that has to do with our words. And again, um, I want to just say this the right way. It's uh, for those of us who are in a hard time, whatever it is, if it's 
you know, like for us, grieving the loss of, of our son, one of the things you got to watch for is that you're not always talking about it all the time. Okay? You, you got to guard against that because it's so easy to become so consumed with it that, that you just keep bringing it up to people. Over and over again, like every time they have a conversation with you, you talk about it. And, and all, all, I, all I can say is you don't want to do that because people will start avoiding you. Not because they don't like you, but it's just they don't know what to do with it. Okay? Just for what it's worth. One more thing and then I'm done. It's the most important of all, and it also has everything to do with self-leadership. If you're on our 365 journey, this coming Thursday, you're going to be reading chapters 38 and 39. And, and these are chapters when God begins speaking to Job, which he continues to do in chapter, chapters 40 and 41. And you, you don't want to miss reading those four chapters. They're, they're the best part of the whole book. They can't contain God's response to Job's struggle with, with the suffering, with everything that's happened in his life. And what you discover is that God asked Job a series of questions, quite a lot of questions, actually. And I, I think if you, if you read those four chapters, you'll see that, that out of all the questions, all the questions, if you take all of them that God asked and you put them all together, they could be summed up with one question God asked Job, and it's this. Where were you, Job? Where were you when I created this earth and everything in it? You know, you know what I think? I think if God were asking Job that question today with, with everything we know about the universe, with our telescopes and modern science, I think God would expand it a bit and say, Job, where were you? When I created the billions of galaxies and the billions of planets that, that are measured in a universe in terms of light years, where were you, Job, when I did that? Last night, I got a call from a um, really good friend. And he said, Steve, I, I just want to tell you about a song that he said, I know you like. You've told me you like it. And it's the king of my heart. And he says, there's a if you go on YouTube, there's a version of this song, and it's, it's, it's done live from a church in California, I believe. Um, I've lost the, na the name of the church. but um, And he said you could just uh, YouTube it, and the name of the singer, and the name of the song. And, and it's like 17, 18 minutes long. But I think you'll love it. And so I did. <laughs> Twice, in fact. In fact, two times and a half last night. He loved it. And what happens in this song is that the, the singer, one of the singers, turns this song into a, a song that would be a few minutes into a much longer song. And, and, and she does it by words that it's like the Holy Spirit is giving to her to sing out to the audience. And so I... I wrote down a few of them because it has everything to do with today's sermon, what God said to Job. I love this part. 
It's been God a long time. <laughs> like forever. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing in you when you can't see it. Just love that. And then this line, he, she's saying it over and over again. He, God doesn't fall off his throne. God doesn't fall off his throne. And then they saying over and over, you're never going to let me down, God. You're never going to let me down. I've been reading a book I read quite a few years ago. I just started reading it re recently. It's, it's a book on prayer written by Philip Yancey. And what, my, what got my attention is what he wrote about this perspective on life that God gave Job. And so if you, it's a little bit longer than normal, so try to track with me on this. He's very descriptive. He said, my home sits in a canyon in the shadow of a large mountain along a stream named Bear Creek. And during the spring snowmelt, after heavy rains, uh, uh, after heavy rains, the stream swells. It, it tumbles over rocks and, and it acts more like a river than a creek. And once I traced the origin of Bear Creek to its very source atop the mountain, I, I stood on a snowfield marked by sun caps. I'd never heard that word before. He said, the, the bowl-shaped indentations that form as snow melts. And underneath, I could hear a soft, gurgling sound. And, and at the edge of the snow, runnels of water leaked out. And these collected into a pool and then a small alpine pond and then spilled over to begin the long journey down the mountain, joining other rivulets to take shape as the creek below my house. And then he wrote this. It occurs to me, thinking about prayer, that most of the time I get the direction wrong. I start downstream with my own concerns and, and bring them to God. I, I inform God as if God did not already know. I plead with God as, as, as if hoping to change God's mind and, and overcome divine reluctance. Instead, I should start upstream where the flow begins. When I shift direction, I realize that God always, already cares about my concerns more than I do. Grace, like water, descends to the lowest part. Streams of mercy flow. I, I begin with God who, who, be, who bears primary responsibility for what happens on earth. And ask, and ask, what part can I play on God's work on earth? You see, it all comes down to you and me trusting our lives and, and everything that happens in our lives to God. Trusting all of this to the God who created this universe who not only created this universe, but the God who proved his love to us by giving his son to be our savior. See, God the Father suffered in giving his son to die for each one of us. This is our God. This is, this is the most wonderful thing we could ever know about God. 
He loves us. And Jesus loves us. Jesus suffered for us. I mean, it just changes my whole perspective to know that Jesus created this universe with his Father, took all of my sin on himself, and died for me. Which brings us to the greatest hope of all. Words spoken by Job himself in the midst of his suffering, his, his sorrow, more than anything else, it gave him the strength that he needed. He said, I know. I know. I know my Redeemer lives. And that in the end, in the end, when it's all over and it's all done, he's going to stand on this earth. He's going to stand earth. Let's stand together. I'd like to lead us in prayer, and then we'll finish our time worshiping, okay? Father, this morning, I thank you for your grace and your love for each one of us. And God, you know, I've told you many times, I've never felt that love as much as I have these last five years. So God, this morning I pray for any person here today who right now is in such deep sorrow and suffering. God, I pray that your spirit comfort them. Give them the strength that they need. And help them, Father, to see your love, to see your grace. Father, just pray your spirit just all over this place this morning. Every person. Christ. Amen.